At your first thought of God, what comes to your mind? It's really important to center on what you first think of when you are aware and when you think about God. Do you think of him as the creator? You should. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning it was God who created the heavens and the earth. Maybe you're thinking of the power of God that is obviously demonstrated by the creation. The 33rd Psalm, verses 6 through 9, says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all the hosts of heaven. He gathered the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Quite often when I speak, nothing happens. Quite often when I command, nobody listens. I'm impressed that God could do everything that he did by just speaking. Are you not? Can you not imagine what the engineering feats we have accomplished in this world? We know that there was a lot of work, a lot of physical effort, a lot of things that had to come together just right in order for that structure to exist. All God did was open his mouth. All God did was will that something take place and it took place. Maybe when your first thought of God comes to mind, you think of our Father who is in heaven. And that's a good thing. Maybe you think about love when you think about God. Absolutely pure, unlimited, unrequited love. Or negatively, perhaps at the mention of God, you may first think of mystery. In other words, I don't understand this God, and I'm a little bit fearful of that which I don't understand. Or maybe when you think of God, you're thinking, and this is negative, you're just thinking of, well, what can he do for me? Because you're really focused on your needs and whether or not God can accomplish those needs. And if he can't, then you'll go somewhere else and find someone who possibly can. I guess it would be interesting to know just what comes to people's minds when they think about God at first. The probabilities are not that we would think of him as holy and reverent, however. I don't think most people in the world who give a thought to God are thinking about how holy God is, how awesome, how reverent God is. A.W. Tozer once wrote that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. If that's so, and I've come to agree that it's so, then this subject deserves our close attention. It deserves our careful consideration. I want to think about, sir, as we begin this morning, this statement that's made in Psalm 111 in verse 9, translated in different ways in our English Bibles, but in the old King James Bible, it says, holy and reverend is his name. I want you to think about his name for just a moment. A person's name is 
synonymous with the person, isn't it? A person's name is synonymous with the person. We speak of honoring someone's name. We sometimes speak of, I'm going to lift your name to God in prayer. Or sometimes we might say of a person, he has a good name. Or they are reputed to be a good person. The Apostle Paul said that before he was converted, a subject about which we're going to spend a lot of time talking in the morning services this week from Acts chapter 9. But he said that before his conversion, he thought that he ought to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Acts 26 and verse 9. But it was really Jesus whom he was persecuting. Acts 9 and verse 5 tells us. Holy and reverend is the name of God. In most of our literature, God is spelled with a capital G because for all intents and purposes, it is a proper name. God, like speaking of Mark or Beth or Ricky or Jennifer, capitalize that first letter because this is a proper name. However, in more recent years, God with a capital G has been bent and twisted to support just about as many different viewpoints of God as there are people claiming to believe in Him. To learn this, all you've got to do is visit a religious bookstore and randomly select some devotional materials and take them home and read them, and you quickly learn that many strange images of God conjured up by people just to satisfy a particular author or those that might be reading that author because they are accommodating their God to their personal needs. And a greater disappointment to me is that we're told that to be truly Christian that we've got to be tolerant or we've got to be accepting of all of these varied images of God which in actuality reduces God to nothing but a religion of many gods when everybody has his own idea of who God is and what God wants and what his response should be to us now if God's name is important his name this passage says is holy which means pure it means ceremonially and morally clean. The word, as is used in that psalm, means that God's name is sacred. So it carries with it the thought of separation or dedication or consecration. Holy, the writer says, is his name, which means that not only he is absolutely and perfectly morally and ceremonially clean, but He is the one and only such one of whom that can actually be said. So well within the definition of holy is His name, is His separateness, is His uniqueness, is His oneness. And it's highly unlikely that that's the image that comes to most of the people's minds when they hear the name of God. That there is no one like this but Him. Ephesians 4 verse 6 says, There is one God and one Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. 
in the present world circumstances of which we're a part, it can't really be said too often, the things we esteem most highly are the unique things, aren't they? The things we really value the most are the one-of-a-kind things that you can't replicate, duplicate, purchase anywhere else. Do you have a quilt your grandmother made? It's tucked away somewhere in your home. And you have it because you can't go to Walmart and buy it. You have it because you couldn't even go to an antique store someplace. Oh, you could buy a quilt or you could go to a, 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 a quilt show somewhere that that these arts and crafts folks put together and, and you could buy something, but, but the reason that something is valuable that your grandmother made is because it can't be replicated. It's not something that can be duplicated. It was mass produced. It's unique. And let me tell you that when we get God in the equation and we begin to think about how that in our world, God means so many different things to so many different people. When that happens, it can no longer be said holy and reverend is His name because He's no longer holy. If God is just anybody and everybody's idea of what God is, it's no wonder that we have in our world such a low estimate of God. And sometimes that is spilled over into our personal and religious and even social lives. It's no wonder to me that God is so remote as far as many are concerned. That God is so insignificant. That God is so non-essential in our world. The Holy Spirit's words about God in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5 are instructive. He said, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through Him. Paul is saying a mouthful in those two verses. He's saying something very, very instructive and very, very significant we know there are lots of gods in the world. There are lots of lords in the world. You'll notice that there's the little g there in reference to that and the little l in reference to that. But the idea of there being one true God, one Lord, and that being Jesus the Christ, that's not something that's accepted universally. Holy and reverend is His name. It's likely you've never had any reason to give it much thought. But did you know that this is the only time that the word reverend actually appears in the scriptures? At least a version like the King James Version. It's used here only in reference, of course, to God. It's a rather special word, this word reverend. It's reserved in the scriptures for God and God alone. People use the word reverend all the time. But when they use it, they seldom, if ever, use it to refer to God. They refer to some man who uses it as his title because he's a cleric. He's a religious figure. And so it's become a familiar word. It's like everything that's familiar. Reverend is a word that has lost its distinctive meaning. Now, the New King James and the New American Standard both use the word awesome instead of the word reverend. And oh my, 
Just about anything is called awesome nowadays. I wish I could get that word out of our mouths. I don't know how it started. I'd really like to do a study about that sometime. I don't remember growing up that that word was used to describe a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I don't remember that anybody ever saw a television program and said, oh, that was awesome. Because that word, that notion of something being awesome, something that deserves reverence, is a word that has changed significantly in its meaning. And nowadays it is used to refer to anybody and anything and everything that we consider to be special. But that word reverend or awesome is from the Hebrew word yare, which means to fear or to revere or to frighten, to make afraid. Terrible, Strong's Dictionary says. And that's the word that's used in scriptures exclusively for God. Yes, I know it's true. That's the King James Version. The New King James says, holy and awesome is his name. The American Standard says, holy and reverend. The New American Standard has holy and awesome. But let me tell you, the Revised Standard translates it, uh, holy and terrible is his name. Now I know what you're doing. When I first read that out of the Revised Standard Version, I was shocked. And I thought, boy, if there was ever a place where they missed it, they missed it. They didn't miss it. What they had to say there about the name of God is spot on. We use the word reverend so commonly. We reuse the word awesome so commonly. And since we've trivialized awesome to mean anything that's unusual, anything that's above ordinary, anything that's delightful or exciting. Perhaps the word terrible is the most fitting of the three English words used to describe our God. And I can expect that there would be someone here that would say, well, that's not my God. My God is not to be terrified. My God is not terrible. Well, maybe he's not your God. Maybe that isn't your God. But may I suggest to all of us this morning that the problem with this is, is that the scriptures reveal a God that many people do not want to know. And many people, when they come to the notion of God, they have their own image of who God is, and they have whittled down the God of the Bible to suit their own tastes and to make him into what they want him to be. And that is part of what this series of lessons is all about this week. There is a part of the nature of God that's revealed in Scripture that modern man just does not want to think about. And the terror that ought to be associated with the name of God is one of those things that most people do not wish to consider. We'd much prefer to perceive God as just a loving, grandfatherly gift giver, a pal, someone you don't have to dress up for, someone you can just go casual with, someone who's a jovial good old boy you can joke around with or joke about, somebody that just gives you a good feeling about yourself, someone that you just treat any old way and he'll forgive you and he'll forget and it'll all be all right. Yeah, somebody says, that's my God. Let me tell you, you're spelling God with a little G. 
You're not giving the awesome and reverend name of God the respect it deserves when you just want a buddy and a pal out of God and you want to be all casual with Him. That's the dominant attitude even of church people nowadays. Go all across this metroplex today and look at the churches and look at what's going on inside them. And it's church that people like when they don't like church. It's the church that people have put together that's a church after their own liking, not after God's design. You know, there's a great story in the 27th and 28th chapters of Genesis. And the story sheds some light on what I'm trying to say to you this morning. As you probably know, Isaac, of course, was the son of Abraham through whom God had promised to bring the Savior into the world. And Isaac had twin sons, Esau, Jacob. And the name Jacob, all Bible names had significant meanings, but the name Jacob meant supplanter. Do you remember that? A heel grabber. And indeed, that's exactly how he was born. When he came forth, he is held on to his brother's heel as Esau was being born before him. And the word meant somebody who gets ahead by tripping somebody else up. And that's how the name developed. Well, you know the story of Jacob and Esau. And you know that uh, by tripping up his father, that Jacob received the blessing that would have otherwise have gone to his brother. Isaac did not want Jacob to marry a woman of the Canaanites, but to go back to their own people to find his wife. And Jacob set out on that long journey. And do you remember that when nightfall came and it was time for him to rest, he took one of the stones there in that place and used it for his pillow. Over at Hampton Inn, they don't have pillows like that. I had a good night's sleep. It didn't feel like a rock at all. I've always wondered why would a guy choose a stone for a pillow, but I guess pillows were just that way in that day and time. And so he got this stone under his head and he had a dream that night. Boy, would I have uh, if I had had a stone on the back of my neck. And this wasn't any ordinary dream like you and I would have, or even like Jacob doubtlessly had had many times before. It was a very unusual dream. It was a most extraordinary dream. It was one in which God appeared and made a promise to Jacob. And in that promise that was made to Jacob, it was the same promise that had been made to Isaac, his father. It was the same promise that had been made to Abraham, his grandfather, that they were going to produce a great nation and this would put him in the lineage of the Messiah who was going to come generations later. And you can read all about that in Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 22. But I want you to pay attention to what's said in verses 16 and 17 particularly. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Now that's a rather enlightening response to the realization of having been in the presence of God. He realized this was no ordinary place to be. This was no ordinary sleep to have. This was no ordinary dream to occur. 
He recognized that he was in the place where God was. And what's his guttural response? He was afraid. There was a fear that came over him. It was not glee. It was not shouting and dancing around and shouting hallelujah. All this kind of stuff. There wasn't any joy. There wasn't any doubt. But it summoned a response of obeisance. That's a word we don't use. It summoned a response of fear. There was no flippancy in Jacob's response to God. There was no casual familiarity in this situation with Jacob and God. And the message to you and me is the spontaneous reaction of a spiritual person who suddenly realizes or becomes aware that they are in the presence of the very God, holy and reverend is His name. Let me give you another instance of this to help us understand what I'm trying to describe. Do you remember the circumstances when Moses, the leader of the children of Israel, went up on the mountain to be in the presence of God? And while he was there, he went, of course, to receive the law of the commandments that were written on the tablets of stone. You remember that episode in the book of Exodus? I'm sure you do. Do you remember that when he went up the mountain, the people were not permitted to go along with him. In fact, they were not even permitted to touch the base of the mountain under the penalty of death. They were even told that when Moses went up to get this law, that they all needed to get on their clean clothes. They needed to wash their bodies and wash their clothing. They needed to be ready for this meeting with God. Now I just ask you, does that sound like God doesn't care or take notice of how we appear before Him? When did He quit doing that if He did quit? He paid attention to what people looked like when they came into His presence in this circumstance. Did He not? And lest any of them should take it lightly, God sent Moses the second time to tell them to bathe and to wash their clothes and not to touch the mountain. And you can read all about that in Exodus 19. I'll leave it for you. I don't have time this morning to go to it. But let me tell you what the Hebrews writer in our New Testament says about this episode. He said so terrible was the sight that Moses said when he was going into the presence of God, I am full of fear and trembling. No, Moses didn't descend the mountain with dancing and shouting and big smile on his face and a celebratory mood. What I'm trying to say this morning is that God's very presence must never, ever, 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 ever be taken carelessly and casually and light-heartedly. Wake up. You're in the presence of God Almighty. Somebody says, yeah, but I thought the Bible said that we're in the presence of God all the time. Well, we are. There is no question about that. The scripture teaches the omnipresence of God. In fact, the psalmist would say uh, to us, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I go up into heaven, you're there. If I descend down into the grave, you're there. You, you can read that passage. You understand that he's aware in Psalm 139 that, that God is everywhere we are and he's places we're not. God is omnipresent. That's a feature of deity. 
However, there are certain consecrated places. And there are certain consecrated times when God comes nearer, in fact, is nearer. Jacob's rock upon which he laid his head became a very sacred and holy place to him. A very special meeting with God took place there. And he said in Genesis 28 and verse 22, he said, this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. When God appeared to Moses from out of that burning bush to call him to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, here is what, here is what God said to Moses. He said, Moses, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he also said to him, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses, watch it now, hid his face. For he was afraid to look at God. Holy and reverend is God. Don't get too close. Don't be too familiar. Don't be too casual. God is God, and He's the only one there is. There's no one you can compare Him to. There is no one like Him. There is nothing that's ever been before Him or after Him that's going to approach Him. Holy and reverend is His name. And in that model prayer, which Jesus prayed in the New Testament of Matthew 6 and verse 9, He taught us to pray in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed or hallowed. Be thy name. Hallowed means to make it holy. Hallowed means to purify it, to sanctify it, to venerate it. Which is not too different from the definition we learn of the Hebrew word for holy in Psalm 111 and verse 9. My brethren and friends, in prayer... And in other avenues of worship which God has given us to approach Him, God's name, God Himself, God's very person is to be revered as the one and only, distinctive. And therefore, when we come into His sacred presence in prayer or other avenues of worship, we fall down before Him in our hearts in obeisance, which means to obey, but it also means to humble our hearts before Him, recognizing that we're in the presence of someone that there is no other of. Now, despite the fact that God is always near the Christian, I mean, He promised us, I will never leave you I will never forsake you. Despite the fact that God is always near, despite the fact that God wants us to have an awareness of His presence. Do, do, you, do you ever have a day when you're not aware of the presence of God? Shame on you. You're a child of God. Your Father's always there. I don't care what you're doing. don't care where you are. You'll be mowing your grass. You'll be plumbing your sink. God is aware of what's going on with you. 
God is with you every step of the way. God is with you at work. God is with you at play. God is with you at rest. Oh, I remember, I remember my mother, bless her heart, she wasn't even a Christian when this occurred. But I can remember being put to bed at night with that little prayer that I guess mothers prayed routinely. I don't know where it developed, but now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I heard that prayer over and over and over from the lips of my mother, and she wasn't even a Christian at the time. She later on became one. But I'm here to tell you, I laid down at night as a child aware of the presence of God. Everybody else in the house was asleep. God was awake. Everybody in the house didn't know what was going on in the world while they were asleep. God knew. He was not unaware of what was happening with the rest of us. But let me say to us this morning that there are times and there are places when we are nearer to God than when we are in other times or other places. And one of these is the time of our private devotion to God, our worship to God, the Christian's private time with God. Am I talking about something you don't know about? If you are a Christian, you need to develop private devotional time with God, not something your wife knows about, not something your husband is doing for you, not something your wife is doing for you, not something that you do together, not something you do with your children. You do this because you and God are alone with one another. We often open our prayers with something like, Our Heavenly Father, we come to Thee, or before Thee we come in prayer. <laughs> Despite His assurance of His presence with us always, when we pray to God, that's special talk. When we call upon God our Father, we're talking to a God who knows our thoughts before we utter them, yes. But we're talking to a God who is everywhere and hears all prayers at all time by all people to whom He listens and doesn't get us confused with somebody else and their requests or their needs or their confessions. You know, Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 6, of people going, as the old King James says, to their closets to pray. The practice in his day was for religious people to get on a stage and pray, or to go on a street corner somewhere and pray, so that they could be heard, and so that people would observe them and say, oh, what a, what a spiritually minded guy that must be. But Jesus said that when you pray, you pray in your closet, which means that you're in a private place. You're not on display. There's no one there but you and your God. And then, of course, there are the assemblies of the church, of which we've been a part today and continue to be a part. And when Christians draw into a special and sacred nearness to God, you know, I still believe that there are some things that a congregation does in worship which we cannot do in our private devotions. And these are sacred moments when the church comes together in one place to do those things. And great care needs to be taken that our appearance before Him on those special occasions is reverent and that it is awesome. 
You know, I don't know how many meetings you go to every week. Don't know what your jobs are. Some of you are meeting to death. Monday is coming, and I bet you some of you will start tomorrow morning, all morning long, with meetings. They're going to tell you about what we're going to do this next week. And you're dreading it already. And Sunday nights are filled with fear and dread and anxiety because of the meetings tomorrow and what's going to happen. Well, those are important meetings. But they're not meetings with God. And I'm going to tell you that you go to a community association meeting because you've all got something going on there that you have in common and some need that needs to be met in your homeowners association or whatever it is. Or you go to a PTA or a PTO meeting or you have a meeting with a child's teacher or you have a meeting with an insurance agent or on and on and on and on. We go with these meetings but when we come together as a church, this is a sacred meeting. Here we come to worship Him whose name is holy and reverend. And from what I'm reading, there are people in about every religious group who've been heard to say, I'm not getting anything out of these meetings. And they're dreading the meetings. About like they're dreading meeting with the insurance guy. About like they're dreading meeting with the homeowners association. And the reason might well be that there is insufficient preparation and only a little bit of what should be present with our reverence and our awe. Christianity is a special way of life. Christian worship is a very, very special, significant, distinctive spiritual event. And the carnal, casual spirit that seems to have totally permeated our society where people don't have respect for anything is destructive to meaningful worship in spirit and truth as Jesus taught in John 4 24. I'm going to talk more about that tomorrow night about the worship that we offer to our great God but I'm hoping this morning that we can see our need to improve our reverence folks the world is robbing us of that. And it's rubbing off on us. Just look at the world of which you're a part. Look at the way people behave nowadays as opposed to how they did as you were growing up. Not that the way you were growing up was standard or the standard. My point is, things are obviously changing in terms of the way people approach God. What they expect from God. What they're going to do in the presence of God. Or whether they even realize they're in the presence of God. But those who come before God, and they come before God with no fear. They come before God with no respect. They come before God with no awesome reverence. You know, the world is one day going to be taught a big lesson about reverence for God. Do you not know when that's going to be? I read this passage often, and it makes me tremble to think about it, and yet it's in the future for everybody in this world. Philippians chapter 2 would begin there in verse 9 by saying that for this reason God highly exalted Jesus. He bestowed on Him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Do you know when that's going to take place? Not today, unless judgment comes today. People don't know how to fear God, don't know how to reverence God in life. But when they stand before him in judgment, they're all going to bow the knee. There's not going to be any atheists at the judgment. There are not going to be any agnostics at the judgment. There are not going to be any unbelievers at the judgment. When we come face to face with God, whether we did so in life or not, at judgment we bow our knee and we confess that Jesus Christ, who has this exalted name, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But that confession only vindicates God. It does us no good whatsoever because the time for our preparation in meeting God is now. What are you going to do now to demonstrate your reverence and your fear of God? We're going to take a close look at the rest of that this week. And I hope you'll join me. I hope it'll help us. I appreciate so much your valuable moments this morning. And I wouldn't want to do one single thing to waste your time or mine. And if I could improve what I've said this morning, I want to improve it. And I always appreciate your comments. This is ordinarily a Bible class period, but our time is gone. And I hope you'll pull me aside and tell me some things I need to know that'll help us to be more reverent. Because the last thing in the world I want to be is irreverent and disrespectful and ungrateful to the one whose name is holy and reverend. May the Lord bless us to that end. Thank you. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.